0: If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles. Just wave, get their attention. Now get a Bible into your hand and then, and it'll be marked right to our passage here this morning and you'll be able to not only hear the Word of God, but read it as well. And the Bible will have a double impact in your life. Our passage begins in verse 8. Of course, tonight we will not be uh, teaching from Isaiah, so I've pulled out a passage that I think the Lord has directed me to for what we'll be studying uh, next Sunday night, because next Sunday morning we'll have a Christmas message. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 8. Now go, write it before them on a tablet, the Lord instructs Isaiah. And note it on a scroll, that it may be for time to come forever and ever. That this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, Speak to us smooth things, prophesy lies, deceits, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Therefore thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you. Like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and he shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel which is broken in pieces, he shall not spare, and so there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved, and quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your desire to speak to us. Thank you for your voice. We never take it for granted. Thank you that you're a speaking God and a communicating God, and we want to hear everything that you would speak to us, Lord, every single thing from your word, and so speak to us today, the person of your Holy Spirit, in this room and in our hearts, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We notice that God instructs Isaiah to record this part of his prophecy to the southern kingdom of Judah on a scroll. And he tells us that in verse 8. Because the Lord wanted to have a permanent record of this prophecy so that when the difficult and hard aspects of the prophecy would be fulfilled that none among the children of Judah could come back to God and say, uh, accuse him of having not told them the truth. Nobody could say, uh, couldn't say that God hadn't warned them. We notice the condition of God's people in Judah in that day, uh, their attitude towards God's word and it's told Listed for us there in verse 9 That they were rebellious The Lord declared So they were living under the threat In Judah of an Assyrian invasion God had promised them Don't worry about the Assyrians They're not a problem They're not your problem They are my problem Your problem and your issue Is to simply walk with me And trust in me And obey me And then I will take care of all of your problems for you, including Assyria. So don't worry about Assyria. I will take care of Assyria for you. And it was just as simple as that. As God was speaking to them, all they needed to do was just put their trust, as we're told there in verse 15, just put their trust in him, put their trust in his promise to take care of them, and then sit and enjoy the rest and the quietness and the confidence that would come from that. They responded to God's word by ignoring his instruction and rebelling against it by developing their own plan to deal with Assyria and God viewed that as rebellion so they decided that God's word wasn't enough his promise wasn't enough to them that he wasn't trustworthy and so they approached the Egyptians to establish a mutual defense pact, where they would come to one another's defense in the event of an invasion uh, by this uh, Assyrian uh, army and the expansion of the Assyrian Empire at that time. And that plan is described in uh, chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. You might look there. And the Lord said, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. How many of you know that when you devise your own plan out of a motivation of fear, And that plan is contrary to God's instruction, that it always ends in shame and humiliation. I won't have you shout out or raise your hands. I just trust that I'm not the only one in the room that's experienced that. I want you to also notice that their lives were not only marked by this and other rebellion, but God also tells us by lying. And their lives were marked by the greatest lie of all, and that is professing to know and to love and to trust God when they didn't. And that's why the Lord confronted them in chapter 29. You might turn back a page and, and see this confrontation of the Lord with him in verse 13. And therefore the Lord said, inasmuch as these people draw near with me, near uh, with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts from me and their fear toward me is taught, by the commandment of men. And so they were lying in giving this uh, idea that they were faithful to God, obedient to God, they loved God, they were, uh, knew God intimately, and yet they refused to obey his word. And then astonishingly, they are further rebuked by God for being intolerant of hearing God's word. Imagine that as it's there in verse 9. Imagine claiming to be God's people and then being intolerant of God's voice, intolerant of heeding his word or obeying his word. You expect that from non-Christians. You expect that from a pagan culture. And, and yet, uh, from those that aren't Christians yet, but here are God's people refusing to listen to God's voice. Imagine the creation treating the creator in this way, and those that ought to have known better. And this is just a complete scandal in heaven, scandal in the eyes of God, and he brings it up. You notice their demands of their spiritual leaders as a result of their condition. In verses 10 and 11, to the seers, they demanded, do not see. And a seer in those days, and even today, was someone who received revelation or messages from God to be delivered to people, and those messages came to them by way of visions or by way of dreams. And they demanded that these seers stop receiving these revelations from God, stop being faithful to God in their calling, and stop telling us what God has to say about our lives and about our sin and about anything. They weren't content to rebuke the seers, but they were bold enough to rebuke even the prophets. And to the prophets were told in verse 10 they declared do not prophesy to us right things. The prophet is someone who like Isaiah had been raised up by God who received prophecies or messages from God that they didn't delivered to people and it's to speak forth for God. And hear the words when it says they declare and demand of the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. The words don't mean, uh, listen, we want you to declare to us outright lies. They demand that later in the verse, as we'll get to it in a moment. But here when they say, do not prophesy to us right things, they What they're demanding is, don't speak to us straightforwardly. That's what the right things means in the original language. Don't be straightforward with us about uh, what it is that God is speaking to us. They were demanding that the prophets not speak their prophecies from God in in such a direct way, in such a straightforward way, that they stopped declaring the truth of God in all of its plainness. In other words, you prophets, they were saying, you're wordsmiths. You know how to speak. This is God's call upon your life. For many of them, it was their livelihood. You know how to say things. It's it's what you do. You understand communication. And you know how to take a message even from God, and something from His Word, and to say it, but not really say it, to massage it in such a way that you major in what are the minors of the verse, and you minor in what are the majors of the verse, and you... Set it forth in which technically, yes, you taught the verse, you declared the prophecy, but you end up really saying nothing. It loses all of its force, all of its power, all of its pointedness, and it doesn't produce any sense of conviction or guilt in the very people that it's aimed at. And to say it, but not really say it. Not to be clear, not to be direct, not to be unmistakably clear. In other words, if the message were a poison, as the old saying goes, it couldn't kill anyone or hurt anyone. And if it was a medicine, it couldn't help anyone. And i tell you, anyone who's spent any time teaching anything, even teaching the Bible, learns uh, very readily how to do this very thing if they choose to, to violate the charge that is... Uh, given concerning teaching and that is that it's not enough to teach so as to be understood but we have to teach with such clarity as to not be misunderstood and they didn't want that kind of plainness they didn't want that kind of directness even uh, from the prophets they declared further in verse 10 speak to us smooth things in other words speak we know you have to speak this is what you do but only speak things that please us. We only want to hear soft things. We only want to hear pleasant things, positive things. We want you to speak positive things, even to rebellion, rebellious Christians like us, flatter us. Why do these sermons have to be so filled with God? Can't you talk about us a little bit once in a while? Make your messages a little more man-centered and talk about how great we are, how amazing we are. Let's talk about our human potential a little bit. We don't want anything that's pointed or jarring or unsettling or convicting or uncomfortable for us, even as rebellious sinners among God's people to hear. We don't want to hear any of that thou art the man as Nathan spoke to David with such clarity and pointedness about his sin concerning his adultery with Bathsheba and his arranged death of her husband Uriah the Hittite. We don't want the clarity and the directness and the plain speaking of John the Baptist who spoke to Herod and said it's not lawful for you to have her when he contemplated marrying Herodias, his brother Philip's uh, wife. And today they would declare that kind of clarity and that kind of directness is fine for an earlier age. There are many that believe this today, by the way. These things that we read in the Bible of the prophets, of the seers, of past spokespersons for God, all of that kind of clarity and directness, fine for an earlier age, but the times have changed. This is a modern society that we live in, a softer society, without realizing that they thought their society was a modern society at the time that they were living it. But we're in a modern society a softer society. You can't speak to people directly in that way or dogmatically if you hope to make any inroads in the modern culture, if you hope to be taken seriously by the modern culture, if you hope to prevent being kind of relegated and Christianity with it into some kind of an ash heap in, in human history. Times have changed, and you better start changing with them. And so people like and they demanded soft preaching but their demands go even further in verse 10 they demand that these prophets even prophesy deceits don't give us the truth give us lies give us illusions make everyone feel good about themselves no matter how they're living make everyone feel that they're right with God no matter how they're living Pastor, you know how to do it. To just take kind of a kernel of truth from the Bible and then build it into a lie. You know, just don't just tell people part of the truth. Don't tell them the whole truth. Just Keep telling us that God is love and don't inform us concerning what that love looks like any more than that. Let us define it for ourselves, what it is to mean for ourselves, to define it in such a way that God will accept me no matter how I live or what I do with Christ. So you just tell the truth technically and, and then knowing full well that as you declared in this certain way from the Word of God that people are going to come to a wrong conclusion about God but technically you brought out some truth from the passage but you never balanced it with what the rest of the Bible had to say related to that very subject there's no need to dot every I and cross every T and this was the demand that they were placing on the prophets you know not all lies are outright lies We can deceive people when we just selectively omit certain truths that will then cause them to come to the wrong conclusion about something. And it's very easy to teach something that's technically true in a passage, but it does not meet the standard of the rest of what the Bible has to say about that particular subject. And then the people leave believing they've heard God's truth on that subject when in fact they have been taught a lie, and sometimes purposely so. They weren't demanding what uh, uh, any prophet or any pastor wasn't capable of if they chose to do it. Any prophet, any pastor is capable of doing the very thing that they were demanding And then they said, declared further in verse 11, get out of the way, turn aside from the path. In other words, get off your narrow path of right and wrong and holy and unholy, good and bad. The world has changed and we have to change with it or no one's going to listen to you. And then further still in verse 11, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Okay, wow. (laughs) Wow. And in this they're not meaning, and they're not calling on the prophets and the seers to disown Jehovah as the deity of Judah. But what they were demanding is that they refuse and reject Isaiah's conception of him as the Holy One of Israel. Stop teaching about God as being holy. And stop teaching the implications of the fact that our God is a holy God. Stop talking about His holiness. Stop talking about His demands, holy demands of His children. Stop speaking about holiness altogether. Again, just keep telling us that God is love and then let us then define God on the basis of that however we want. But don't complicate things by telling us that He's also holy redefine God, redefine holiness so that he and it more closely reflect our fallenness and our sin-filled lives. The fascinating thing about these demands that they make is that these demands are not made by out-and-out pagans or by atheists. We would expect such a demand from an atheist, but from the children of Judah, those who consider themselves to be God's people the same kind of thing occurs all the time even today except that this kind of Christian this kind of child of God today will very rarely be so bold as to go up to a prophet or a seer or a pastor and as bluntly as the children of Israel did uh, demand that they cease uh, teaching in this way and representing God in this way most people will not verbalize their demands in the way that these and the children of Judah verbalize their demands and so they won't confront, confront it directly or state their expectations verbally instead they vote with their feet and so they'll simply change the church that they attend or they'll stop going to church altogether but the message is clear they are emphasizing what they're not comfortable with and what they're not comfortable with is the whole counsel of God including its repeated emphasis upon holiness including all of its exhortations and its warnings and its rebukes that accompany its many many Encouragements. And the odd thing to me is that they still wanted the seer and the prophet to speak. They still want a sermon as a part of the church services, so to speak. They just wanted a sermon of their own choosing. Now, what might be some of the motivations behind this kind of a demand by God's people of their spiritual leaders. I think there might be several. Probably most often, it's the case in the passage that we're looking at here today, a person does not like the exhortive passages of the Bible, the passages that emphasize God's holiness and the need for our own holiness, and the reason that they're uncomfortable with it and they don't like it is because they're living a life of rebellion to God in some area of their life or in all areas of their life, and they just simply don't like to be confronted with their sin or to be convicted of their sin. And so if a person is unwilling to repent of their sin in light of the teaching of the Word of God or to repent of a carnal Christianity, then Bible teaching becomes a real drag to that kind of person, especially when you go all the way through the Bible. And if they're unwilling to repent, but they still want to be associated with Christianity and God and church and these kind of things then what they have to do is begin to bring pressure on the person who's been called by God to deliver God's message to lighten up or to become smoother or to become more positive or to become less direct in the teaching of God's word and God's demands and his standards. Well, that's one kind of person. Sometimes... Other people, they get upset with the prophet or the seer or the pastor because what they say on God's behalf wounds their pride. You ever read something and it makes you ashamed? (laughs) Something in the Bible because of how we're living or something from the Word of God, or something that gets taught. You know it's from the Lord, but boy, it can really wound our pride. Now, a, it can sometimes be shocking for people to realize that God really doesn't care anything about my pride. In fact, he's quite interested in removing it uh, from my life. But sometimes they'll hear something and their pride is smitten. So that's why sometimes people don't, uh, before they become a Christian, you can't become a Christian without at least admitting this, but some people, they don't even like God's assessment of them as a sinner. That smites their pride. I mean, in their mind, sinner is this word that's like, put, set aside for axe murders and arsonists or something. Not people that have done wrong in the sight of God. And, and so that the Word of God and as it's taught in God's assessment in His clarity. And His clarity by design can sometimes be very offensive to people and it can wound their pride, but it's a healthy wounding and God knows uh, that it is. And so the person who is listening to some teaching of the word and the the word is being taught in an accurate way and it wounds our pride, we need to realize, not to personalize it, toward the individual that God has called to deliver the message, but to realize that it isn't that person that's speaking, but it is God who has wounded our pride through his word. And that kind of person needs to look behind the human instrument to the one who has called that human instrument to God who is then speaking to the person. I think there's another kind of person, and that is that and another reason why these kind of demands are made and increasingly made of Uh, spiritual leaders even within the body of Christ today. And I think increasingly today people are put off by the strength and the directness of the Bible and its exhortations and its rebukes concerning sin and its strong exhortations to holy living because the culture around us has become so weak and it's become so soft and so willing To say the unwilling to say the right thing out of a fear of offending somebody Even if that somebody is driving their car over a cliff There's such a strong pressure within our culture That the strength and the clarity of the language of the Bible Becomes increasingly foreign to the average individual and so we don't, we're being fashioned by our culture in a way that we don't even realize. And so the Bible in its clarity, and its directness, it's something that we're simply not used to because the culture has become so weak and it's become so soft. And so they're offended at being told, as I've already mentioned, that they're sinners in need of a Savior. But if God doesn't tell me that, how am I going to end up saved? They're offended at wrongdoing in our lives being pointed out even by God. They're offended at any language that isn't smooth or comforting, even in calling them to repentance. And this, of course, is part of the curse uh, that a pastor in the United States today uh, has to minister under. And then there are many other people who don't want to hear the warnings of Scripture because they know that the warnings of future judgment, both worldwide and individual, are true. They know it's coming. They know deep in their core that it's coming, but they just don't want to be reminded of it. So they live under the motto, ignorance is bliss, not only in their daily lives, And so they are disconnected from so many things in life. But they carry that disconnect over then into their spiritual lives as well. And they just say to themselves, Listen, I just want to know all of that stuff. The problem is all that stuff is in the Bible. And all of that stuff is required to make a mature disciple or follower of the Lord. There's a problem with this attitude and... The Lord brings it up in verses 12 through 14, and you notice that word, therefore, that begins verse 14, uh, this is, or, or begins verse 12. This is the Lord's response to that attitude, uh, and so he says that the problem with this is that it leaves us unprepared for reality. This whole thing of saying, listen, ignorance is bliss. I don't want to know those things. I don't want to hear those things. And God says, yeah, but the problem is, is that I know that you need to hear them. And if you don't hear them, it's going to leave you unprepared for reality. And reality is always coming our way, whether we recognize it or not, or whether we prepare for it or not, or whether we choose to ignore it. And so for them, in Isaiah's day, they didn't want to hear Isaiah talking about repenting of their sins and getting right with God and trusting in God to protect them against Assyria. They didn't want to hear that their mutual defense pact that they had established with Egypt would end in disaster, and they wanted to live in ignorance of all of this, that and wanted so much to live in that ignorance that they demanded that their spiritual leaders tell them lies if necessary to keep them from facing reality and further to comfort them and to soothe them while they sat in this great, great danger. But what happened to the children of Judah? They didn't repent of their sin. They didn't turn to God. They didn't let him defend them. They didn't repent of their trust in Egypt. And ultimately, Egypt was of no help in defending them against an Egyptian, uh, an Assyrian onslaught. And Assyria came in, invaded and plundered and destroyed all of Judah except for the city of Jerusalem. God had offered them help to head off all of that and they had refused that. And the same thing will happen to us in our individual lives if we do not wonderfully embrace God's encouragements in His Word, but also His rebukes and His warnings. Because the enemies of our spiritual life, the world, the flesh, the devil, are far more ruthless and far more dangerous than Assyria, was to Judah physically. And we need to be continually warned and exhorted concerning this. Now in our passage, God likens this kind of self-imposed ignorance... To standing next to a very, very high stone wall. So when you go to Israel and uh, you see the walls that they've built out of stone and mortar, very, the walls are very, very high in the land. So don't think of a wall that you might put around your house that's, uh, you know, four foot high or six foot high or even eight foot high. We're talking about Uh, very, very high uh, walls that made up either the walls of a city or they make up the walls of of, uh, an individual's residence. And so he likens this kind of self-imposed ignorance to standing determinately, I mean fixedly, next to a very, very high stone wall that has developed a breach in it, it. That is, it's developed a very large crack in it Or it has developed a bulge in its base. You see a bulge in the base of a stone wall, and you know that wall. It's just a matter of, not a matter of if, but when is it going to collapse, and who is it going to collapse on when it falls? And so God was likening the fact that they would not heed him in his warning to standing at the base of this high wall that has gigantic cracks in it and a huge bulge in its base and and in ignoring uh, all all of these things and, and and in ignoring it, putting ourselves in a place of danger. Because a crack in a wall, a bulge in a in a wall that's a reality and when you're facing that kind of a reality you either fix the problem or else you're gonna bear terrible consequences as a result the ultimate collapse of the wall is on everyone who is camped underneath it and we should consider a person to be crazy in the physical realm who would not face their situation squarely this is the wall that is around me it's unsafe it's a danger to me it's a danger to everyone that I care about and I need to fix this problem if they didn't face their physical problem with that kind of clarity we would think that they were mad but God's point is is that many Christians do this very thing spiritually They refuse to hear His warnings concerning what is putting us in spiritual danger. So they ignore their problem instead of fixing it. And ultimately, a terrible consequence is paid for that in life. Because sin is always working toward our destruction. Always. James wrote in his letter in chapter 1, let no one say when he's tempted that I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed and then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and then here it is and sin when it is full grown, brings forth death, do not be deceived my beloved brethren. And the Lord echoes this very, a a very similar warning to the Jews in Judah through the prophet Jeremiah later in their history. Jeremiah chapter 5, he said, an astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule by their own power. In other words, ultimately these people get their way And they uh, convince the priests and the prophets to do it as they they want. And God went on to say through uh, Jeremiah, and my people love to have it so. But then he poses the question, but what will you do in the end? Because believing in lies or living a lie never changes reality and reality is always coming our way. Well, let me close with an application or two. Say what in the world does this have to do with us? I mean, as Christians living in the year 2014 and and what does this have to do with us as saints attending Calvary Chapel in Modesto? Well, the Bible alerts us to the fact that the very thing that was happening in our passage and is, is exposed in our text here, and Isaiah's time will one day mark the many, if not the majority of Christians in the days immediately before Jesus' return. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and he said, For the time will come when they, speaking of people, Christians, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That is a New Testament exhortation that is an exact match and warning as we find here in Isaiah chapter thirty. And so I want you to notice as Paul exhorts Timothy here and encourages him here where all of this originates, where all of this is going to happen, this kind of apostasy and this moving from clarity and directness and into softness and into uh, lies and illusions and all of this. Notice where the pressure is going to come from, Paul says, in the last days, where it originates. It does not and will not originate, interestingly enough, from the pulpit. But it will originate from the pews. And it's important for us to realize as Christians that each of us as Christians has a responsibility to be a strengthening influence in the church that we attend, to be a godly influence in the church that we attend. Paul wrote also in this regard, he said, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of uh, boasters, proud. Blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's a description of Judah in Isaiah's time. And then he gives the warning concerning, encapsulates all of it, Paul does, concerning these people, and he says, and this will be a dominant influence within Christianity in the last days, these people who have a form of godliness, but deny its power. And Paul said, from such people, turn away. Wow. Wow. Turn away from the spiritual influence of those who claim to be Christian, but who are willing to turn Christianity and a local church into something that gives the appearance of being spiritual. That's why you don't dump the sermon. But it really isn't. And they do so in order to protect their sin-filled and their self-willed carnal lives. And in contrast to all of that, and in opposition to all of this considerable pressure that people can bring to bear upon the leadership of a church, the Bible exhorts leaders. Paul again, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, "...I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ..." who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, and the idea is all the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And then listen to this. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. He says also in that same letter, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, the very things that people want to have put away. And it is full of these things, Paul said, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. We cannot become who God wants us to be in this world and stay in that place without not only God's encouragements in our life, which are vitally important, but I'm not talking about that this morning but also his rebukes, and also his warnings and his exhortations. When Paul in Acts chapter 20 was meeting the Ephesian elders and what he thought would be the last time that he would see them, he declared to them, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And when Paul declared that to the Ephesian elders, he declared it with a sense that in doing so, he had accomplished something great through his life and in their life as a result. Do you think that a church like this church or other churches like it uh, just happen that this church has stayed on course biblically for almost 30 years now. Do we think that that happens just accidentally or that it happens by happen chance? It doesn't. This church and others like it has stayed on course by the grace of God, supremely, but also because pastors have resisted the kind of pressure that's described in our passage from both Christians and the culture concerning the importance of the teaching of God's Word and all of God's Word. The pressure to move from clarity and directness and faithfulness to God and His message to smoothness and emphasizing only what is positive and encouraging and neglecting those passages which I'm completely capable of doing. Neglecting those passages which are more exhortive or more convicting But no church has any hope of surviving if that is only the attitude of its leadership and it is not also the attitude and the expectation of the congregation as well. If the congregation itself quietly and individually caves to the flesh and caves to the culture and changes its expectations concerning the teaching and the declaring of God's Word what it will and will not listen to from God's Word then the battle will ultimately be lost in that church no matter what the quality or the determination of the leadership Because this cannot be maintained. No church can be maintained or survive unless both the leadership and the congregation remain united on this. And in very practical ways. And let me give you a practical example speaking about our Sunday evening Bible study and doing so. And let me preface it by saying I don't bring up this as an example uh, in order to get a larger crowd on Sunday night or to make those of you who for legitimate reasons are not able to attend on Sunday night. You have an early, very early start to your work day on Monday morning or you have health reasons or other legitimate reasons. So I'm not talking to that kind of situation of that kind of, of person but in our sunday evening bible study we go through the bible from genesis to revelation and so we hit it all we hit all of the blood and the guts and the glory we learn about the law of moses and how it's all a picture of christ we read all about israel's very dismal history during the period of the judges We read and we learn the book of Proverbs and the book of Psalms. And now we find ourselves in our journey through the Scriptures in the book of Isaiah. And now heading in earnest into that large section of the Old Testament, the Bible that is known as the Major and the Minor Prophets, where candidly, the message can repeatedly be one of rebuke and exhortation. And so, someone decides... All of this is just way too negative for me. I need something a little bit smoother, a little less straightforward. Something that doesn't emphasize God's holiness so much all of the time. Something a little more perky, you know, and encouraging. And so they stop coming to the Sunday evening Bible study and the fellowship that is there, the worship that's involved in the service as well. And after all, here you are, 50, 60, 70 years old, You've been a student of the Bible for many long years, and there really isn't anything that the pastor could say from those passages that you don't already know. Here's the problem. Your children and your grandchildren are watching you, and they don't take into account your deep knowledge of the Scriptures. All they can see is that your Christian life consists only of Sunday morning worship and Bible study. And so they conclude that that's all that's necessary for their spiritual growth and maturity as well. But they, know, they don't know that your spiritual growth and maturity would have never happened on just a Sunday morning attendance of, your ch- of church through those years and Bible learning. And so they then conclude that... that that's all that's necessary for their spiritual growth and maturity as well. Again, they haven't begun to know the Bible and understand the Bible yet as you do, but they look at your example or maybe then they take it a step beyond what even you've done, and they conclude that it's really not necessary to attend church at all. They can just listen to Bible studies and worship music alone on their, on their uh, phone during the week, and it works just as well. On Sunday evenings, we have our junior and senior high students uh, join our adult services, and we do that for a reason, And one of the reasons that we do that is so that following their high school experience here at Calvary Chapel, that when it's now time to leave that kind of upper room where they've been nurtured for those years, and it's time for them now to come Enjoying the adult portion of our fellowship, where they will spend many, many long, more and longer years than they ever did in their high school group. That they, when they are introduced into this environment, they will always already have a history with me and the other pastors. They will also already have a spiritual history with this room. God will have already spoken to them in this room. They will have already worshipped the Lord in this room. They will have already heard God's voice in this room. This room will be a warm place in terms of their memories. And it is also in order that they would be in this room to not only develop a relationship with the room and with me and with other pastors but also in order to develop a relationship with you as other parts of this local body and so in they come into the sanctuary on Sunday evenings and they notice that this particular assembling together of the saints is but a quarter or a third of the attendance in the Sunday morning services. And so they conclude, and they are concluding beings, by the way. (laughs) They are thinking beings. And so they conclude that this service must not really be that important at all. And it certainly is really not considered necessary for spiritual growth or health by the majority of adults in this church. And so, why should they consider it necessary? And as soon as their parents stop forcing them to come, then they'll cease to come as well. But I ask myself, don't they have a right to see on a Sunday morning, on a Sunday night service, to see a large, a proportionately large number of Christians of every age, every background, every different place in their growth and their spiritual maturity and their knowledge of the Word, a room largely filled with people lifting holy hands to the Lord in prayer and in worship, to have that as a part of their spiritual heritage, that that's something that they take from their youth into their adult life, and and that that be a part of their Christian heritage, even on Sunday evenings. You see, concerning church life, it's not all about the pastors and the elders and the deacons and what the worship leaders are doing. God has a much larger picture of what constitutes the health and the vibrancy of a local church. And that also includes every single member of the church. And that's why the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. You can't do that on your iPhone. You can't do that listening to Bible studies, and I listen to Bible studies all week long. Listening to Bible studies and worship music on my iPad or on my iPhone all day long, by myself. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day, the day of Jesus' return approaching. And here in that verse is the recognition that church isn't just about what I need from it and what I receive from it and from its leadership, but also what I bring to it just by virtue of my presence to say nothing of my gifting and my calling. Where have all of the Sunday night, Sunday evening Bible studies gone in our community, the community of Modesto? Where have they gone in less than a generation trying to find a Sunday evening Bible study in this community is like trying to find an albino robin. It almost does not exist. And that has changed in the 30 years that I have been in the city of Modesto. Where have the Sunday evening Bible studies gone in less than a single generation, when not that many years ago, it would have been considered, a church would not have been considered a legitimate church without a Sunday evening Bible study and without a midweek Bible study as well. And why have those Bible studies become so rare? Is it because the seers and the prophets and the pastors decided out of the blue just to cancel all of them? maybe occasionally, but most often it's because people just stop attending because God's Word and the things of God's Word can't compete in their lives anymore with the smooth words and the deceits and the illusions and the unholiness of what is found on television or in some other self-centered entertainment and ultimately if a church dies it doesn't die from the top down but from the bottom up and the guilt in this case in Isaiah chapter 30 it isn't always true but it's often true and it's often overlooked the guilt in this case does not lie with the prophets and the seers, but it lies with the congregation. And so back to our youth. Concerning no other group in our church is Paul's exhortation to Timothy more important than giving consideration to our youth. And when you're my age... Those who are 30 in this church are youth. But concerning no other group in our church is Paul's exhortation to Timothy more important than concerning, than giving consideration to our youth and our decision-making in this regard. Paul said again to Timothy, let no one despise your youth. And then he went on and he said, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. He said, be thou an example, not to the world. There are plenty of other verses in the Bible that speak of being an example to the world. We get that. But in that particular passage, he says, be thou an example To the believers and there is a whole be thou an example side of the Christian life that is rapidly being lost today in the United States under the weight of selfism and selfishness and American individualism and we're going to lose something very precious if we lose that and so I mentioned these things this morning not because I think we have a serious problem here as yet, but in order to make us aware of the powerful forces that are operating in us and upon us and all around us in this regard in order to inoculate us against those things. Somebody says, that's it. This settles it. I'm never coming to this church again. So often, the culture is attempting to change the biblical definition of Christianity and what it means to be a Christian. And very often, that pressure does not come from the pulpit, but it comes from the pew. And we need to be aware of it lest we find ourselves unwittingly participating in it. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for this word. It's a strong one. And we have felt it, but it's a needed one. And we recognize that in our spirit. And we just commit, Lord, this realization that the responsibility for the health and the vitality and even the future of a local church does not lie upon its leadership or even supremely upon its leadership but upon the congregation and we pray Lord the beautiful light and the power of this passage that you would speak to each of us individually about our place in the health and the strength and the vitality of the church body that we call our home and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand.